I really appreciated uh, Bobby asked me to come here, and I was particularly excited to speak uh, to this audience because most audiences I speak to are kind of apolitical. They don't have one you know, particular orientation or another, and usually what I'm doing is speaking about energy or industrial or environmental issues. And my basic assumption is that the audience is coming in disagreeing with me about just about everything, which is, you know, which is fine, because it's fun and instructive to build up the case uh, from zero. But what I thought I'd do with this audience is um, share from you, just from my own, you know, what is now 12 or 13 years of experience in this field, what I've found to be particularly uh, effective. And especially in starting my own organization, Center for Industrial Progress, it was uh, largely based on and, and continually applying just one concept above all that I found really helpful in being more influential and being more effective uh, in promoting liberty. And I know, at least for me, and I know for many people, this can be a really uh, frustrating area. I mean, to be blunt, we're losing. You know, I mean, the government gets bigger and bigger. Um, it's, it's hard to find an area where you see people becoming freer and freer, which is exactly what we would like. And if you're in the position of thinking, well, the government should be much smaller than it is. Um, it shouldn't have all this coercive role in our lives, and it's not. That's a really frustrating thing to continually see what you think is right uh, be gone against. And there's a question of, well, why, why is that? And is it inherent in the world that we're losing? But I think it's helpful to acknowledge uh, that we are losing because... You know, we have to be realistic about things, and I think it can help identify, it can encourage us to identify what are points of leverage that could switch that. Um, and with this issue, I see kind of two common perspectives, which I've held at different points myself, uh, which I think both are, are wanting. And one is uh, what I would call baseless optimism. So people thinking that, and this happens at different organizations or with individuals, kind of like, well, if we just, you know, if we just argue in the right direction, if we support organizations in the right direction, if we start programs in the right direction, if we spend money in the right direction, things will turn out right because we are in the right. Because that's obviously not true at all. Um, I mean, if it was, I mean, on the premise of, on the classical liberal premise, to get from the founding fathers where we are today, that that doesn't that doesn't work. So that's that's a very wrong premise, and it's a wrong premise because it doesn't take into account the fact that we're dealing in a system, and we have to look at what's happening in the system as a whole. Not just are we taking action, but what is everyone else doing, and whose actions matter most, and how many people are taking uh, what actions. So that's kind of the that can sound depressing. But let me tell you the other one, because right? the other one is to be too depressed. Uh, about it, in what I would call lazy cynicism. So you can look and say, yeah, we're losing, it's no good, and often it comes in, in people will try convincing others, or an organization will try convincing others, they won't be too successful, and they'll say, well, like, people just aren't open uh, to reason. Now, I think in a business context, if you want to look at who succeeds and who fails, bad businessmen are, businessmen, bad businessmen are ones who say like, oh, you know, my customers are idiots, they don't know a good product when they see one and they sort of give up early. And it's usually their product isn't great or they don't know how to communicate it that well and it's their fault. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs did not have this attitude at all. I mean, he had like, I'm gonna create a great product, I'm gonna make sure uh, people see it. And so that's, I don't like the orientation. I, mean, I don't think it's a healthy orientation to have. I think in general with communication and anything else, our starting point should, if we're not getting the results we want, we should look inward, not outward. 
because we can't do anything about anyone else. So it's, it's theoretically possible that it's not possible to succeed, but that should be like a very depressing last resort, not a first resort that, oh, other people are just jerks and I'm, I'm so smart and enlightened and moral. But the real reason why this doesn't make any sense is because we know from history that it is completely possible to go from less liberty to more liberty. That's why we're all here today, right? I mean, we had the whole founding of this country. That was going from less free to more free. And then even within that, look at, we had the abolition of slavery, which was a huge um, evolution. Not just the abolition of slavery here, but I mean, here and around the world, the general decline of slavery around the world. There's many pro-liberty declines, uh, I mean, not declines, but um, declines in government coercion around the world. So we know that historically it's possible uh, for things to go in the right direction. So that's, that's one thing. Um, doesn't mean it's easy, but it, it means it's possible. But then the other thing is, and this is why I asked this question of what you individually can do, if we take a look at the types of actions that we can take as individuals, it's very clear that it is possible for individuals or relatively small groups of individuals to have impact. So you mentioned the issue of voting. Now this is kind of our smallest leverage point. And everyone who votes, you know, we wish we had 10 votes or 100 votes or someone would give us more votes because we're smarter. It doesn't work that way, but since half the people don't vote, you get two votes if you vote. So that's one. That's not that high leverage, but it's good to think about because you have as much influence as you have. I mean, you have some influence. And it matters, and enough, enough people do it, it matters in, in one direction. But where I think the real um, excitement lies is in other means of what an individual uh, can do. So, for instance, just talking. If you notice individuals talking, debating, whether it's on Facebook or in person, you'll notice that some individuals are far more effective than others. And some individuals, even those who are not professional communicators, will over time have pockets of people who really go in their direction. And some people are wildly ineffective and spend hours you know, trolling on Facebook or just even arguing on Facebook in a way that doesn't work, or they're just arguing, arguing, arguing. So we know that in talking, you can get really good results, or you can get really bad results. So that's interesting. And there's a whole continuum of different actions, and I won't go into all of them, but I'll take, let's take um, a really high level one which is, this is the field I'm involved in, um, think tanks. So, you know, some people, um, especially wealthier people, they decide to support, like, you know, think tanks. So we'll take, uh, say, and I think much of what think tanks do is not particularly productive, and it's hard for think tanks to be successful. Um, because it's hard for nonprofits to be effective in a lot of ways, because for profit, you always have the advantage of, you know you're doing the right thing if people buy your product and nonprofits, you know, the ultimate customer isn't buying your product. So like if you're the American Enterprise Institute, which is one of the leading right-wing think tanks, how do they know exactly when they've succeeded? It, it can be hard because their customer, they have donors giving them millions of dollars and then they have people they're trying to influence. It can be hard to know how much influence are you getting and are you getting the maximum benefit of the buck? So it's a hard question. Um, but it's demonstrable that some of these think tanks and thus the people who have given money to them have done huge things. Uh, now this is a, don't, don't take this as liberty, but take this as influence. Um, you guys are all familiar with the Iraq War and the whole phenomenon of the surge. I mean, that whole thing came out of the American Enterprise Institute. There was just one guy beating the drum, basically, sorry, over and over and over. 
my old boss used to demand $250 when that happened. I, I will not uh, do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, That's but, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was, I think it was a volunteer. He set up a contract in advance. Oh. <laughs> um, but literally, I mean, so that influenced the whole course of a war. Or if you remember um, in 1994, the Republican Revolution, there was a contract with America. Now, again, maybe not the greatest thing, but that was informed by an organization, the Heritage Foundation. So people using words in the right way can be extremely uh, effective. And, the, and we can see it on, on both sides. So we know that it's possible to be effective. But it's extremely, extremely important to figure out what are the effective things to do and what not. Because it's possible to completely waste our time, really completely waste our time, or it's possible to, you know, to change the world. And those are you know, two vastly, vastly different uh, alternatives. So what I'm going to talk about tonight is, is one idea that I think is very powerful and has been very powerful for me. This is definitely not going to be the be-all, end-all of how to change the world. Um, but it's, it's made me a lot more effective, and I, and I hope it, it clarifies a couple things uh, for you guys. Oh, one other thing, in case I forget to mention it later, just in terms of what we can see as effective versus not, uh, which I think is very undervalued, is sharing or handing out literature. I mean, the communists, which are not an example of liberty, but are an example of being effective, this was what they did. I mean, they just handed out literature, and it had a, and I'll talk about what made it convincing, but it had a certain effect on people, and I mean, people who didn't know anything, really, but just handed out the literature had a huge impact on the fate of civilization, or on, on my side of things, uh, Ayn Rand uh, with Atlas Shrugged. I mean, the fact that that became such an influential book that was passed out by people, recommended, I mean, I've given it to tons of people, I know tons of other people have. I know people whose lives are changed. Even uh, my best friend in college gave me a copy, and I proceeded to make a career out of those ideas. So, I mean, that, you know, it can spawn huge things just to do these discrete actions. So it's very exciting that we can do the right thing, as long as we can capture some of the kernel of what makes it right and what makes it uh, effective. Is it possible there's something a little shorter than Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that was just an example. Yeah, we'll get to other things. Go to capitalism.com. I could hit them with a book. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, there's going to be one less advocate for liberty on the streets, but, but maybe not. So anyway, after, this has been a really interesting question to me because I run my own organization, and just as an individual, I don't want to waste uh, my life, and I don't want to waste, you know, people, uh, I don't want to waste my time, my money, other people's money, etc. So after just really studying this and thinking and talking to everyone I could, and just really looking at what works and what doesn't, why do certain... Um, movements succeed and why do certain ones fail, one thing keeps coming up over and over and over. And it's what I call controlling the moral narrative. Controlling the moral narrative. I'll elaborate on what that means. But the, over and over in these debates, the party that can control the moral narrative uh, wins. So I'm going to give you an example of a, what I would call a moral narrative. And this is with this is one of the moral narratives that I regard as responsible for the financial crisis because it led to the creation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the other 
GSEs or government-sponsored uh, entities. So this is, um, um, I'm gonna read this, and this is, this is my summary of what I regard as the general argument that was made by hundreds and thousands of different people. It's what I call the American dream argument. So it's home ownership is part of the American dream, but the greed of bankers is taking away that dream for millions of people by charging excessive interest rates for engaging in discriminatory practices. So the government can lend a helping hand and make the American dream a reality for millions of people. Are we going to be the kind of society that helps people achieve their dreams? Or the kind of society that leaves them at the mercy of bankers who don't care about anything more than making a buck? Now this, this, this was subscribed to in one form or another by George W. Bush, who called it the ownership society. Um, it was certainly subscribed to by President Clinton. I'm not exactly sure President Reagan's uh, Paul Senate, but certainly those two, and then um, by earlier administrations. And this, this was a very common narrative, and the idea of the government getting involved in home ownership, um, of artificially affecting interest rates, of creating loans that wouldn't have been created in the name of the American dream. This was extremely powerful. And why do we call it a moral narrative? Well, it's a narrative in that it's a story. It's a story about something that's going on in our world. Um, and moral, I think, is just is the key, though. Um, so it's, what is morality? I mean, morality is really, what, are, what fundamental choices do we make in life? You know, what is fundamentally right and fundamentally wrong? And both the idea of fundamental and the fact that it's a choice is a huge deal. Because fundamental is, like, the American dream is a very fundamental idea. It's like, this is the core of America. Is this, who are we going to be as Americans? Are we going to be a compassionate society where people, and, and one, an empowering one where people can own homes? Or are we going to be one where people are just, you know, left allegedly on the street? Um, it's, it's very, when you're dealing with fundamental stuff, it's very, very powerful. And then the other aspect of it is the choice aspect. So there's this issue on the table, and it's an ongoing issue, it's a story, and we have a choice about it. And you're always motivated much more when there's a choice, because if this was just happening in you know, Bosnia and you couldn't do anything about it, or even if it's happening in America and you felt like you couldn't do anything about it, it wouldn't be motivating to people. But if people feel like you can vote for this legislation and make the American dream possible, it's extremely, extremely motivating. So if you present a narrative with this fundamental basic choice and you frame it in this way, it is, it is extremely, extremely uh, powerful. Um, and the way someone feels when they're affected by a moral narrative is they feel, they feel like they're obligated to act. They feel like it's morally necessary for them to do something. And then psychologically, because uh, whether we're moral or not in our own eyes is tied to our self-esteem. There's a huge self-esteem component to it. Like, am I the kind of person who supports the right legislation and does the right thing, uh, or am I not? So you get, it's just this amazingly um, impactful sort of uh, framework. So when someone creates a narrative like that, if you're, you're on the other side of it, you're in trouble unless you do something to stop it, because it's just like an intellectual freight train. And if you just do, if you just quibble with it, or you just say like, well, those interest rates are a little high, they might even adjust those, but the freight train is still going down. And uh, so, uh, so I want to talk in a minute about how to how to stop these, you know, how to stop these kinds of freight trains. But I want to give you a little more uh, range of, of which ones. So let's take. Let's take the, the laws that um, came about after the financial crisis. 
um, like Dodd-Frank and some of the others. So here's what I would say the moral narrative is, is here. The financial crisis was caused because of excessive unchecked greed, greedy financiers seeking to make a quick buck off risky financial instruments and predatory loans. If we don't put a stop to greed, it'll continue to destroy our economy. So again, that's a really powerful thing. If, if, if the real thing is we have to choose between a greedy society and a fair society, and that's what's on the table, you're not going to stop legislation. You might be able to alter a little bit, but you're not going to stop the general direction. Um, now, here's my own, my own biggest interest, is the energy industrial space. And, and um, fortunately or unfortunately, the green movement is the best movement, I think, today at using these narratives. And they'll say, like, are we going to be a society that pursues, you know, sustainable, clean, green, progressive energy? Or are we going to be a society that self-destructs by using unsustainable, you know, dirty, uh, regressive energy? This is, the, like, in fracking, this comes up, the Keystone Pipeline comes up. So in all of these issues where the freedom to do something is on the line, whether it's freedom in financial markets, uh, freedom in energy, freedom in lending and borrowing in homes. You've got these extremely powerful uh, moral narratives being presented by the other side. Um, now, it's not, it's not that it's inherent in an anti-liberty position at all. And number one example I would think of that has a really powerful narrative is the Founding Fathers. You think about what they have. They've got, we're being, you know, tyrannized by Britain, taxation without representation. We aspire, you know, we want to be a society with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is really hard to argue against, but it's completely a, a moral narrative of, you know, there comes a time in the course of events, it's unbelievably powerful. Atlas Shrugged is also a moral narrative. Uh, interestingly. And if we look at the success of the Tea Party, which I think has been somewhat but marginal, they use a lot of it too. It's these, they'll often use, you know, like these these power lusters from government are trying, you know, take they're spending us into oblivion, they're mortgaging our future, they're completely irresponsible, all they care about is their own power. And that really made a dent. Now, there's a problem, but I don't think they had a clear enough idea of what they wanted to do. But you still see the power of it. So, what what do you, do we do to uh, to counter these? Well, first I want to talk about what what not to do, and I think there are three classic responses to a powerful moral narrative by the right, broadly speaking, and none of them work too well. And I call them appeasement, superficial opposition, and total opposition. So. Appeasement is basically, if we take the first example of like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, is basically saying, yeah, we really should be doing that, and you know, I might quibble a little bit on the legislation, uh, but you know, I'm going to let it, I won't argue with it too much, this is pretty much okay, I'm not going to pick a fight. And this is the general policy of businesses, especially if, they're, if their neck is not on the line in a particular instance. Businesses are the, unfortunately the champions uh, of appeasing these, these sorts of things. Now, the next policy is the policy of conservatives, which is superficial opposition. And it's often, they'll concede that it's ideal. So they'll concede, yes, the government should promote the American dream, it should promote home ownership, but this particular form of doing that is counterproductive or impractical, or it's going to have, quote, unintended consequences. 
Um, so that's that's a general conservative policy, and it doesn't doesn't work too well. Um, but then the interesting one is the one that I've used uh, for most of my career, which I would call total opposition. And it's saying, well, the government has no role in this. It shouldn't be involved. It's going to be destructive if it does. It's immoral. It's impractical. But I think even there, there's, there's a problem. It's certainly better uh, than others. But the problem with all of them is that they're completely negative. So if you've got this, if, to use like the freight train uh, metaphor, and you've got like this train coming, and one person is basically, the appeaser is waving it by, the other person is kind of sticking, you know, sticks in front of it. Another person is like, a very small minority is saying like, you know, this is bad, don't you understand? This is really bad. But no one is no one is trying to turn the train around in another direction. The people who are saying it's bad, and I've been guilty of this myself if I look back on what I've written, I wasn't nearly clear enough on, well, what should we aspire to in terms of the American dream? What does the American dream really mean? And giving something that would be even more powerful than what they had given, and then using that as asserting my framework and making that compelling, and then showing what was wrong with theirs. So I would, here's just an example of what I would say as a counter-narrative. And part of a counter-narrative is you always have to have a positive ideal yourself. So you can't fight an idealistic movement with no ideals yourself. Because people need ideals, they need guidance. Um, and that should always be the focus of, your, of the way you think about it. So this is not the only way to do it, and I haven't tested this in the field, so I'm sure if I tested over five years I could reword it some. But I think it's, 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 a, decent, it's a decent start. So this is what I would say now, if someone brought up this American dream. I'd say, you know, the real American dream isn't about what kind of structure you live in. It's about what kind of life you live. Do you live a life of security, prosperity, and pride, no matter what structure you live in, through individual responsibility? Or do you live a life of dependence, financial irresponsibility, and fear, living in a house that you didn't earn and can't really afford? The real American dream is one in which both lenders and borrowers are responsible for making good financial decisions, no handouts, no bailouts. So if you put that forward, it's hard. And I've done, I'll talk more about my experience in energy, but it's hard to oppose stuff like that if you frame it the right way. Because you're saying, I'm for this good thing. You're not, you're not attacking the audience. You're just saying, this is what's good. This is what the American dream It's all about individual responsibility. And yes, you should be free to buy home. And you can even explain how all their other policies, including the ones that prevent construction, are making homes more expensive and how their, their policies make homes more expensive. But the main thing is, you have a, this positive ideal, and you create, you're telling the story the way it really is, and it's compelling. And then they're coming in, and you're characterizing them as what they really are, which is they're asking for the unearned. They're condemning people to lives of uh, irresponsibility. I'm, I'm from California, so I know plenty of people who are actually in this position where they were pr pursuing, quote, the American dream, and it made them completely miserable because they were just part of this system where they were just taking on huge amounts of debt. And of course, when the housing boom busted, it was even worse. But, but throughout, it was not any real dream uh, of anyone. So we're going to talk a little bit about how you get to counter-narratives. And I think the first thing, because it's, it's what I want to warn against is sometimes people think, oh, it's just like we should come up with, we should hire good PR people, and they'll spin the issue in our direction. And it's not about spin at all. It's about what's true. So the problem with the 
moral narratives can be true or they can be false. So if you think one is false and it's leading to anti-liberty policies, the point is to figure out what is the, the true one. So the first thing I think about is, well, what is, what is really true in reality? Is the American, and you start asking, if you hear that, is it really the American dream? Is it really the American dream to buy a home? Is that really the essence of it? And is all these behaviors, is that really the American, and is what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, is that really the American dream? But isn't America about freedom and they're taking away taxpayer money or putting, it doesn't make any sense. And with that thinking, you start to think about organizing it in your own mind. No, this is, this is corrupt. And what you often ask yourself, what should it be? Often I don't think people ask themselves that. Like, what should, we just draw a blank slate, what should the government's policy be? What would Thomas Jefferson have said about home ownership in the American dream? And if you can kind of go from a blank slate and see, yeah, this is what it really is. And then that makes it easy to, to present the opposite in stark contrast as really bad. Uh, it's, it's really, really effective. And part of this goes to, I mean, part of this is why it's really helping. I mean, it's a moral narrative. So you talk about the relationship between moral morality and liberty if anyone wants to in the question period, but it's important that it's, it's resonant. And the way to have a moral narrative is you need, you need a moral perspective that's really consistent with liberty. In my view, the only one that's consistent with it is an individualistic perspective. So inevitably it's going to be, you think about it in terms of what is wrong, what is the right thing and the wrong thing to do in terms of individuals. And that's how I would come up with the housing thing, individual human lives, individual liberty, um, that's really going to be the core of any moral narrative, although there are, there are tons of other uh, elements. So, The example I'm most familiar with is, is the Green Movement. I mean, as I said, they're very powerful, but they're, I think they're beatable. And my organization, I don't know if you call it the name, is Center for Industrial Progress. That was a very, why do they call it the Center Against Environmentalism? Or even the Center for Industrial Life? Because it's, yeah, because you need a positive idea. So it's progress. It's for, you need to be for something. And a friend of mine told me, and I was very, Flattered to hear that she told me she met a Greenpeace protester the other day, and they're all and they cost you on the street wherever you go around here. Uh, and and the person said, Are, like, aren't you an environmentalist? And she just said, Sorry, I'm for industrial progress. But in the past, I had been accosted before, and I didn't really even have a way of putting it. I just say, No, I'm not. Or, I defend a for a living. Want to talk? Or, like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually debated Greenpeace a while back, so now I just said, now I just give them a YouTube uh, link to go watch. But um, so it's helpful, but it's it's at every level you can reframe what it is. So let's take the issue of like they'll reframe things as are you like pro environment or anti environment? That's and that's a non-starter. I'm not allowing someone to put me in a position that is anti environment. Like, environment is your surroundings. If you're anti your surroundings, no one is going to buy that, in, including you. <laughs> so, I don't buy it. No, it's, 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 no, I'm for industrial progress, which is the improvement of the environment, of our environment, through energy and technology. So, 
I'll talk about what I think is wrong with environmentalism in that movement. My main focus is saying what I'm for, which is I'm for the improvement of the human environment, and that includes every aspect of it. So that means minimizing pollution, maximizing technology, maximizing your ability to enjoy nature, and it's all through freedom and property rights and voluntary trade. And with that as my framework, I let them come and say, no, I'm against that because I think that you know, we should be able to nationalize basically all of Alaska and not allow oil drilling uh, because of caribou. Like, I want them to fight, but that frames it as their battle, but otherwise what they'll do is they'll say, they'll put in the caribou and air pollution in the same category and say, do you care about the environment? Oh, well, if you don't want to protect the caribou from humans, then you want dirty air. So when you let the other side set the narrative, it's just a complete mess. And so it comes up, you want to frame the, the narrative in the broad sense, and this has to be done for every field. So I'm focused on energy and environment, be able to do for everything. Um, but say, let's take like Keystone Pipeline. They'll say, well, do we want to be the kind of society that pursues uh, clean energy, or do we want to be the kind of society that pursues dirty energy? Now, that's a very powerful thing. I don't want to be associated with dirty energy. If I start there and say, well, yeah, we need dirty energy for the next 20 years. <laughs> no, that's, that's out. I mean, it's... Because what the real issue is, is are we a society that embraces energy and energy growth, realizing that that is the foundation of a healthy economy and a healthy environment, or are we one that restricts energy growth um, in the name of anti-technology, anti-development opposition? And that's what they do. So I'll point out, for instance, they claim to care so much about CO2 emissions, but they're anti-nuclear and often anti-hydro. Um, and even with CO2 emissions, they completely ignore the incalculable benefits of fossil fuels on our human environment. The fact that even though the temperature has gone up a degree in the past century, our air is better, our water is better, climate-related deaths are down by 99%. So it's all in the framework of the human environment, how these different things uh, affect it. And then in that, you can say, yeah, it, to the extent, if someone could prove there was some massive problem, we would address it in a technological way. I mean, then you can go into whether it's actually you know, a scientific thing or not. But, but just setting the terms is such, is such an amazingly uh, powerful thing. And it, it really just, in every issue, you, you got to feel like, do I want to be the side of X? Like, if they're characterizing you a certain way, you say, is that, does that represent what I think? And if it doesn't, then you have to say it, because no one's going to figure it out. Uh, for Just one other example um, that I've been working with lately is the, the fracking issue. Uh, are you guys familiar with this? So hydraulic fracturing um, is a technology, and this is actually part of giving a positive narrative, is just actually saying how cool, really cool things are. So hydraulic fracturing is a way of taking a form of rock that contains oil and gas, um, but in such a way that it's very, very hard, to, that it was basically impossible to get out because it was so tight, it wasn't permeable and it wasn't porous. And it's a way of using explosions and horizontal drilling and uh, water and sand to crack open the rock and prop it up so that you can get oil and gas out of it. And we're getting unbelievable amounts of oil and gas out of using this technology. I mean, this has been a complete revolution. It's dramatically helping the American economy despite everything the administration is trying to do to, to not help it. It's just, it's this incredible thing. Um, I mean, you can't even count how many lives it's extending or saving, how many jobs it's creating. 
And what's the opposition to it? Or how do most people think of fracking? Like what will they, like if I give you one sentence, what do they, how do they define fracking in their minds? Pollution. What kind? Uh, mostly water. Yeah, so they'll say like, if I'll say fracking, the first thing that comes in their mind is pollutes groundwater. So this is a completely revolutionary technology. Um, it is not even relevant that it's just even a false statement. Um, of how fracking works, but that it's defined by contaminating groundwater. All you have to ask yourself is, how many deaths have you heard about from fracking? Mm -hmm. Zero. So it's obviously a completely trumped up thing in terms of the focus. And yet how many lives are improved by fracking? Millions and millions and millions. So there's obviously, someone is not framing this debate properly if this is the way people think of fracking. And really, I mean, we can go into the details, but basically fracking like anything has certain risks, and you have and progress requires taking risks. But the biggest risk of all is not taking risks. So, with fracking, the risk happens to be incredibly, incredibly small, because the real risk to water is stuff that's near water. Big surprise. Fracking does not occur near water. It occurs about six thousand feet below water. So, what's the risk to water? Number one risk is Mother Nature, because you just have natural contamination of groundwater. Uh, by gas and by other things, which is why you've been able to light water on fire forever, for centuries and centuries and centuries. But the other, the real danger is sometimes if you drill what's called the casing improperly at the surface, you can someone can make a mistake, and it's very very rare, but it happens. And if we frame it as this is like this is energy growth is essential to human life and happiness, and we have laws protecting, you know, prosecuting when people pollute, and we have ways of dealing with it. Um, but we're not going to allow it to be defined by the chance of something going wrong. And of course, the other side is completely here, hypocritical. And you, you can, I point this out only in this context of, if you want to talk about people getting sick and dying, talk about the materials used in solar power, uh, solar panels and windmills. I mean, in terms of just horror stories of what happens to the Chinese people who are exposed uh, to those types of jobs. But the rare earth mining. Yeah, the rare earth mining. Right. But that's... I say that as an aside just to kind of make the point about everything can go wrong. It's not that those should be mine, it's just they should have better laws with regard to that. But in general, hypocrisy pointing out is not the most effective thing. The most effective thing is to have a very clear idea of how amazingly positive your side is, and then to just put the other side in contrast, and try to force them to argue against you know, how amazing fracking is, how amazing tar sands and keystone are, how many benefits uh, producing oil brings to our lives, how the, how the Industrial Revolution has doubled life expectancy, how everything we take for granted, um, you know, no one could take for granted uh, 200 years ago. Thanks. And you're back in a while. take it for granted. You're going to say something? It seems like there's an ideal that's put out with, uh, of environment that's sustainable and you can do all this, but there's also uh, a component of it that this is what you can do. You can join this organization, you can recycle, you can uh, vote for this bill. Uh -huh. And that is another part of the ideal, which is taking action. Yes. And an organization of action and people and, and what to do. And that seems yes. a component of the other side. Exactly. Powerful. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a fantastic point. So it's um, making the point of how with environmentalism and many of these movements that use moral narratives, well, one thing that they do really well is they drive action. Well, they give people means 
of acting on uh, the moral narrative besides besides voting. And this is something that, um, and just what I what I'm working on in the Center for Industrial Progress, it's a huge issue uh, for us in terms of figuring because. You don't want to do something, even here, like I'm handing out a mailing list, so everyone sign up on the mailing list, because um, it's a really cool mailing list and it's free. It doesn't bug you too much. But I, everything I do should drive action in some way. It's not just, you know, we're here to talk and then we don't do anything. And those guys are amazing at, they have a huge infrastructure set up where they give you the ideal and they tell you about the problem and it's like, this tiger in this country is threatened and give $5 or send this letter to your congressman. But it's, it's that there's a lot to learn from what they do. And part of why people are so motivated on that side, why they think up all these things is because they're idealistic and thus people really want to say, well, how do I take more action? How do we do something positive? But on the right, there's not often, there's no, not yet, there's no energy liberation plan out there that, you know, you're writing that there will be. But you know the, you're writing your Congress and that and you're like, oh my gosh, we you know we the freedom to frack it can revolutionize America. You know we're gonna have a proper nuclear policy, but that should that will happen. I mean, that's that's my interest in this in the Center for Industrial Progress. Um, but you're absolutely right that that's that's a huge component of it. So the moral narrative, as I mentioned, is just it's one aspect and it's sort of a, a high level aspect. Um, but there's a whole infrastructure of how you deal with it. And, and part of the infrastructure is all talking to your friends, spreading literature. And once you understand that these narratives are important, if you see literature that does a really good job of it, that's something you really want to spread. That's, that's one example. If you see a politician who seems really good at reframing the issues properly, he's potentially uh, one to support. So I, at least I find it very helpful in just watching how effective, how effective people are and then since I'm a professional activist, it, it obviously can guide me a lot more. Um, but, I'm not for me. <laughs> um, but you really, it's fun, it starts to be fun, like how creative you can be. I mean, you can use slogans. Now, slogans take a while. Yeah, they have drill, baby, drill, which I, I'm not really saying. See, I like build, baby, build, because it's basically illegal to build anything in this country uh, anymore. <laughs> just, I talk about, like, the freedom to frack, or... Um, well, one of our favorites is the idea that because of environmental laws today, you know, the gap between idea and implementation is so big, as against in the computer industry where it's instantaneous. So you basically have like computers at the speed of thought and industry at the speed of government. And what we want, <laughs> what we want is industry at the speed of thought. So that's one of our like one of our core expressions is industry at the speed of thought, because that's that's what industrial progress is. So it's 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 something you can be really creative with, and it, as long as you tap into that, the thing, that liberty, that liberty and the products of liberty are really good, and that if people really understood them in the right way, they would be, be really enthusiastic uh, about them. And I, and I personally love, um, do we want to be this or do we want to, because the other side uses it really well. So I just will say, like, you know, do we want to be a society where manufacturing is welcome or a society where manufacturing is practically illegal? And the, that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But people don't say that enough. And we can, and it's powerful. And this goes to an issue of, um, of like philosophy and, and how people hold ideas. So, um, you, know, my, uh, you know, my grounding is in objectivist philosophy, which is Ayn Rand's philosophy. 
Um, so I'd say, well, I'm cons I have a consistent philosophy on these issues. I'm pro-liberty, pro-individualism uh, across the board. And often people coming from that perspective, it can seem frustrating. Well, not everyone agrees with our entire philosophy, and therefore, you know, it can be hard to communicate. But everyone in America is part has a partially, almost everyone, not Noam Chomsky, but has a partially <laughs> individualistic element in their philosophy. So there's something, there's, a, uh, there's always something that you can appeal to, certainly in the population uh, at large. And so part of what constructing a moral narrative is, is you're helping move their general philosophy in a certain direction by showing them what the right philosophy to have in a particular issue is. And the other side is very good at using their philosophy to frame all these issues. The point is, if you have a better philosophy, you can use that. Uh, to frame all the issues. And once you boil it down to the individual's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and things like technology and progress, if you can frame it that way, very hard to find people who oppose you. And if you want to know when someone is succeeding, one of the tests I've come up with, um, just from experience, uh, one guy showed me this. I, I felt fortunate to have succeeded in this way. There's this um, environmentalist in the audience, and I could tell I had succeeded with making the point about nuclear and oil, when he started acting like a conservative. And by that I mean, by that I mean he said like, well, I'm not against all nuclear. I'm not against all of it. I'm just against some, and this is the kind of guy if in another context would just been oil's evil, nuclear's evil, we gotta move toward a green economy. And, and because I had shredded that whole idea and, and portrayed it as your anti, if you wanna be progress, for progress you have to embrace the cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. And right now that's overwhelmingly fossil fuels. You can't be, pro-fossil fuels and pro-progress, because that had been so entrenched, he had to be like a compromiser. And that's that's the position we want to be in. So it's, it's there's nothing inherent about the wrong position that makes it more effective. Now, I think historically, because we had certain anti-individualist philosophies that moved us away from the founding fathers, the tendency in the society was for those narratives to win because those were the intellectuals who dominated. Um, but those of us who aren't on that side can be very good at framing these narratives. And, and you know, as members of the public, uh, you can frame the narratives and you can talk to, you know, to the extent you have influence over think tanks or you support people, you can talk to them about it. And, and having this issue in mind is, uh, is very, just very powerful in making decisions and in, and in just thinking about what can you do, what can other people do, how do I, how do I assess how my own side uh, is doing? So that's pretty much um, all I want to say. I want to get, have plenty of time to talk. The, the main thing I'll say is I'm, I'm working on this in the field of energy um, and industry. You know, if anyone wants to volunteer, help, or correspond, um, I'm very easy to reach. Capitalism.com, sign up for your email list. Find me on Facebook. Um, so, you know, we can use tons more help. Um, but if you're interested in another field, I hope you just think about this issue in that field, and certainly, um, if I can ever be of help, you know, email me, uh, use me as a resource, because part of the reason I'm giving talks like this, which is not an energy talk per se, is because I think that you know, we need to have a division of labor, and it's, it's enough to do this in my own field, but if anyone in the other fields, like healthcare and finance, all these things need to be reframed. And the healthcare is a nightmare, how it's framed right now. It's basically like, if you're for freedom in healthcare, you want to throw sick people out on the streets and watch them die. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, there are ways, I mean, we can talk about how to counter that thing. Oh, no, only if they want to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's, it's, 
there are ways to, to reframe this uh, for everything, and, and I think if you work with it um, and think about it, it's it's hopefully we'll see going forward that this is something that our side uh, does more and more and more. And you'll start seeing people, you'll see them in public, you'll see them on TV, and they'll really start winning uh, in ways that, that hasn't happened uh, nearly as much um, in the past. So with that, uh, let's take some questions. Yes. Well, Western civilization did not evolve spiritually properly and in many ways is unfit for the technologies and even the political institutions uh, that it has. So let's just, in, in the, at the risk of upsetting some people, let me talk about email for a second, which I think is one of the most abused uh, and sometimes destructive technologies. Uh, so when the phone first came out, people complained about it because they're like, I can't get anything done. Because people are calling me on the phone all the time. You know, we used to schedule appointments or send letters, which I could read whenever I wanted. And this is interrupting me. And it's true that if you just introspect a little bit psychologically, or if you ever take time off phone and email, you'll see that your ability to think dramatically goes up. I mean, you cannot write real like good stuff, um, real comic good stuff. That wasn't grammatical there. Uh, <laughs> you can't write that kind of stuff. <laughs> With just you know getting spammed all the time, this guy has this idea and here's this credit card offer, and yeah, and it can become addictive. I mean, it can it can has many addictive qualities, and one becomes in a reactive mode. This is I mean the whole phenomenon of multitasking has elements. So the point is that it's very technology as such is an incredibly it's a positive direction, but people need to know how to use it well, and it doesn't come with a guarantee that people will use it for what it's beneficial for. And not for itself. So I think I use email pretty well now, but because I'm aware of the pitfalls, I get tremendous benefits. I mean, think I, I just said to everyone here, email you. What if it had been well, smoke signal me if you know you need me, or you know, call me? Then it's just I have to take calls all the time, or snail mail me. You're gonna have to write a letter. If not, nothing's gonna happen. Um, there's so there's such an upside 
but then there's intentional downside. So the way I would I would put that is is if someone points out a real negative use, I'd say, yeah, people can use it incorrectly, so we need education. So you should start like a smartphone rational happy usage class. But that's I always bring it to how I think about the situations. A part of how I think about freedom is yes, people can make wrong decisions, and those who are interested in those wrong decisions can take an educational role or they can offer some service where they like offer to even hold your smartphone for you for a week, you know, or who knows, or people can do all kinds of crazy arrangements. And I do this with everything, like socialized medicine. If Paul Krugman and all these other rich guys think it's a good idea to have socialized medicine, they can just set up a bunch of contracts themselves and make a whole socialized commune of healthcare and then see see how that goes. But they can't coerce me. You can do with monetary system, you can choose the Bernanke standard, or you can choose free banking and gold and see, you know, see how it goes. Uh, so it's again, you think about like how do I think of this and don't we should never feel like some any fact is somehow against freedom. There's no such thing as a fact against freedom. It's just a question of understanding how it fits in. And freedom is not a guarantee that everyone gets to be happy or everyone does the right thing. Freedom is primarily about you and me and everyone else that we get to mag we get to do the right thing to the best of our ability and enjoy our lives to the best of our ability. Um, and you know, other people making mistakes is a very secondary issue. I mean, I want to help them avoid making mistakes, particularly in policy, but it's their lives. And I think if you really value your life, you have just a very strong sense of, yeah, it's my life. Yeah, he's making a bunch of dumb decisions, but I hope he does better, but it's his life. And uh, again, if you assert something like that, like I own my own life, it's really hard for someone to come up to you and say, no, you don't. Because it sounds an awful lot like slavery. Yes? Just his comment on technology just uh, made me think of the general point that I feel like, you know, on, on some issues we're, we're fighting the right, on some other issues we're fighting the left. I think in technology in general we're, we're fighting both mm -hmm. sides because the the left says don't mess with nature like they've made, you know, Mother Nature or God and other things. Like uh -huh. that. And, then, and then the right says don't mess with, like, you know, the Christian God or, or whatever, you know, Religion. don't play God and stem cells yeah. and all that. So I feel like both sides are 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 against, you know, what we're for. And fortunately, I'm not sure how much they realize they agree. I, maybe they They're starting to, though. Yeah. It's like, what would yeah. Jesus drive? And, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, it's just a general, you know, you're talking about family, fighting a particular side. And I feel like on, on the general issue of technology, we're actually fighting two sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in a sense, you're, you're fighting for one thing, right? I mean, it's, I mean, ultimately, you want the law to reflect what you believe or, you know, what I believe. So it's, yeah, I'm fighting these guys, but it, it, so right now they're the dominant players in the debate. I acknowledge I'm losing. But still, the, the most constructive thing I can do is think about how do I convince the American people of a pro-technology policy? And it's helpful to know in terms of knowing your enemy and knowing what things that both of them come from primitive religions. I mean, the, I mean, the environmentalism is just, I mean, primitive religions worship animals in nature because they don't understand how the world works. I mean, it's just a modern version of that. Um, so, you know, that, that can be helpful, but the main thing is, you know, so I can tell them that, but if I lead with a green audience with, hey, you know, you're just a disciple of, you know, people who worship monkeys, that's probably not going to go over <laughs> so well. But if usually they have some element of, of pro-technology in addition to their anti-technology, and I can try to cash in on that and then really draw stark contrast, like, 
you know, what you call promoting green technology really means destroying the technology that works to produce energy in favor of stuff that doesn't, you know, favor, that also happens to be quite primitive in terms of, like, say, windmills. Uh, yes? One of the, one of the things I run into is, is the green people that say, well, you know, if we went back to this point in time, and so I boil it down to, well, how many billion years do you want to go back? Three billion. Well, you can't go many billion years. Three billion. Three billion years back, the Earth was nothing but a rock. Uh -huh. Is is that where you want to start? But where is it? Like a hunter gatherer type thing? Like they yeah. have all this recreational time to play tennis and yeah. ponder <laughs> the university, fall in flight, and cannibalize each other and have periodic famines. Hey, to make the point, I'd like to just go back a hundred years and show that the ninety-nine percent now. Have more than one percent had that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, got cell phones. They had none. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's a good type of point. I mean, with some stuff like that, it is you know. So part of part of the moral narrative is often there's this concept of morality. It's like it's a it's just this morality is one field, and then economics is another field, and science is another field. And actually, morality is, is kind of a, a more fundamental field, because it's about how fundamentally do you act in life. And that needs to be informed by economics and science and, and, and just what are the facts. So it's nice to know, like, well, what were the facts about hunter-gatherers and what were... So in, my, in the book I'm working on, The Story of Energy, I talk a bit about what it was like for hunter-gatherers and energy. It's not, not too good. Um, but... And, and I guess this goes to the broader issue of, of having an impact. There's many more things than this that are needed to make an impact. And one thing we're working on, which I think is a category that's helpful to, so if anyone is in another field, you should do this. Uh, it's a category I call the go-to resource. Um, so imagine you know you have someone asks you a question about global warming, right? Like, don't we need to stop uh, coal, ban coal because of global warming? Now, unless you're sort of a trained expert who answers this every day as your obsession and you really like figuring out the exact right way to answer this, you're probably not going to be able to give the greatest answer. And what's more, it's hard to find the right thing to refer someone to uh, for various reasons. There's a lot of long books. There's a lot of articles. Um, but most articles and resources for various reasons, which are complicated, are not really written to directly address um, like one issue at a time or one question at a time. So I'm, I've become very in favor of, of FAQs or encyclopedia type things where you have like, here's how to think about global warming. Like, here, you know, here are the basic facts, but more, here's how to think about it. Here's how I frame it. And so one project we're working on um, is um, called the Industrial Encyclopedia. And it's basically a go-to resource. So, you know, at a certain point, in a couple of years, any issue that comes up like this, you'll be able to go to global warming and get a really good essentialized thing uh, with really clear examples and references, and then it'll link to lots of other aspects. So it might be like global warming economics or you know, climate gate controversy, hockey stick. And it can be really helpful to, it, you need to know the facts you know, along with the principles, and not just the, um, particularly, you need to know part of having a narrative, a proper narrative, is you need to know the true facts about the world. So, you know, sight unseen, you don't know how CO2 emissions impact climate unless you know something about, or the likelihood of different scenarios, unless you know what is the greenhouse effect. That's a very helpful thing to know. What does catastrophic global warming depend on? Like, 
what is consensus? What is science by consensus? All of these things, at least in my own experience, as I understand these individual issues, it's very empowering. And I think, wow, I spend all this time, how can I download what I know and then download the best people that I know? How can we download that all on in a way that's super easy to digest? And so I hope that, I wish that happened with healthcare, for instance, because there's so much in healthcare that comes up where I know the general principles of it, but there's so much like history and specific things that I just, I don't have good uh, access to. So I think when people are writing, writing needs to be, a lot of modern writing, is, someone's going to hate me if they see this, but you know, a lot of people are going to hate me, but a lot of writing <laughs> comes out of the novel, like in terms of it's, it's you know, you write essays, you write op-eds, they're kind of like non-fiction novels. It's not clear to me that that's always the, the best thing. Those are really good for storytelling, and storytelling are, is really, really valuable. Um, but the, but in terms of making abstract points, I mean, I really like, I really like like very straightforward. Like, here's the issue, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the like, just right down the middle. Um, so I wish there were more resources like that. Yes. So just um, in terms of this point of framing, um, I'm a third year law student and. Uh, uh -huh. I had, some, I had the pleasure of spending some time at the Institute for Justice. Oh, okay, yeah, those guys are great. Yeah, no, and uh, what, what really uh, sort of surprised me in a way was um, how key the communications people were in the whole organization, because I thought of it as being very lawyer-driven, uh -huh. litigation, and you yeah. get court and you fight that out. But they had this thing, uh, SACOs, which is sort of, this military almost acronym is Strategic Overriding Communication Objective. Mm -hmm. And it was basically this idea that for whatever the case was, there would be like two or three key points mm -hmm. that in any media contact that would be gotten across. And it would be like a sentence or two to try and sort of manage the narrative. And one of them really stuck with me. Uh, there was this case where these Benedictine monks in Louisiana mm -hmm. uh, had this practice of making caskets, which they sold in long-standing practice. Mm -hmm. And the state uh, came in and said, oh, well, you know, really, you're only supposed to sell caskets um, if you have a funeral director's license. And it's this whole big, like, multi-year, uh -huh. all these education requirements and hoops and all this junk. And so the the main sako there was, it's a box. It's a goddamn box. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sort of thing that, you know, regardless of how the case comes out, in terms of the public opinion and the impression, mm -hmm. you know, it's like even if they lose, they win because you get this message across of like, well, they're stopping these monks from selling the box. That seems silly, and people get a little yeah. more skeptical about these, yeah. these regulations. So. You notice it's a it's a philosophical, and I have a bunch of friends there, it's a philosophical organization, so it's not just like, oh, that's a spin, but it's, right, it's right. what's very good about it is it, it's really... It's a really good way of highlighting how flagrant it is to tell someone what to do right. with his life. Like, just say, like, you're not allowed to make a box right. in America. Right. That is, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, so yeah, though, and that's I, that I, that's another example of FainTech. It's perhaps the best one today in terms of just, if you look at, for instance, what they did um, with the eminent domain case, the Kilo case, uh, Suzette Kilo. I mean, that they lost that case lost. in court. And yet, in public opinion, they got laws passed against eminent domain in state after state after state after state. 
But it really, and notice, they trace it to an individual's life. They tell a, story, they have a narrative about an individual. You know, it's your dream home. This is a real American dream, not a Fannie Mae American dream, as far as I know. Um, you know, they're a real American dream, and someone is saying, you can't have your house because we think the public interest requires this office building. And the point is, are we in a country where it's your life? Or, you know, as soon as there's enough money in someone's hands, it's your life and your, you know, your everything you value, does that mean nothing? It still hasn't been developed, by the way. Oh, it's a wonderful yeah. example. The house is a monument now. And yeah, they didn't develop it. They have a house there. You can visit. I mean, oh, really? Yeah, 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 you didn't know it. I didn't know that. Oh, it's yeah. like ongoing support. Oh, it's just sitting there. Yeah, they didn't develop it. And I'll, oh, it's, it's marvelous. Yes. One of the powerful things that seems to be for environmentalists is this ritual, ritual markers, ritual of, of uh, recycling and these markers on this, this uh, refrigerator is saves so much energy. And these are daily things that people can identify uh. and, and incorporate in their own thinking. Yeah. And it's very powerful when the message comes through because then they identify with their own life. Uh. And it used to be uh, companies like GE would say, uh, we bring good things to life, and, but this has been sort of discredited as corporate PR, and so there's not like these markers out there that people can see in their everyday life that make it really powerful when the message comes through. There's not yet go-industrial markers on that. But yeah, that's, that is a project. I mean, it's, it's but yeah, it, part of it is that what happens is once you've got this broader narrative, a lot of creative, I mean, people need to have a sense of, am I doing the right thing or not? And if this is this is the right thing, then lots of smart, creative people will find ways uh, to popularize that. And so, so much of what, if, if I thought of like the green movement in terms of what can I personally do to counter every little clever thing they do, I would quit because there's so many. But it's by being decentralized in the proper way and by giving people certain ideas and by putting out certain content, by modeling certain approaches, you know, really, I can't do a web video very well, but I'm hoping that, you know, someone will, I'll give a lecture on fracking, someone will hear how amazing it is, and they'll make a web video on fracking, and they'll, or I'll talk about just industrial progress, and they'll come up with some clever slogan uh, to put uh, on a refrigerator. So that's, that's one aspect. One thing that is an implication of what you're saying is the role of business in all of this, and how guilty business is in the spread of, uh, of the green movement. And uh, one, one thinker named Art Robinson, whom I like a lot, he argues that they're the greatest fit. There's a real case to be made for this, in the sense of, what is Greenpeace's budget? It's a couple hundred million dollars. I would like that budget. It's not a bad budget, but it's not that much given for how much influence the green movement has. Same with Sierra Club. The real money promoting green is business money. They're promoting it to get along, and in many cases it's because some other business is on the chopping block, and they don't care, and they just, you know, they just want to, um, they just want to kind of go along to get along, or they feel like they can come up with, you know, they can use green as a slogan, and it's, it's, it's very much not calculated, like they're really doing what's practical, it's, there's just, there's so much guilt, and so they kind of feel like it's practical, but it, it, no one really buys it. I mean, no one buys that, uh, for instance, Chevron uh, is anti-oil, even though Chevron has all kinds of anti-oil. I mean, Chevron would obviously do much better for themselves by saying, 
like, these are all the amazing things that the oil industry brings to life, and we're proud of it. Instead, they say, we agree that we shouldn't use so much oil. Let's work together to get there. So, like, let's work to kill us. Have you okay. seen actually their latest commercial? Um, I don't know if anyone wants to watch too much TV, but a lot of the commercials they've run lately is, like, how they're funding education and all the positive things they're doing through the revenues they collect, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like they kind of have maybe gone away from their old message and now I'm trying to put in, like, hey, we're not so bad of a company. But in what, bad in what respect? As in, a lot of people, like, as soon as they hear oil company, oh, they're bad, you know? Uh -huh. But now they're trying to change their own, like I said, their own, their own um, um, viewpoint that people have on them, you know, they're trying to change it by saying, hey, without us, you know, we wouldn't, you'd be missing out on an extra million dollars in education or something like that. But it's, okay, but I mean, if someone had, you know, was selling poison and it made billions of dollars and then gave a couple million dollars to education. You like <laughs> Well, but, okay. oh, wait, there's, there's Chevron too, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I know exactly. But so, in terms of, it, but it's like the question is: Is their basic activity fundamentally good or bad? And if you if you try to justify yourself by something that's so ancillary, it's just a huge confession of guilt. I mean, it just shows like you obviously have something to apologize for. If you don't see like the you don't see before it went extinct, you didn't see like Solyndra. Oh, did you pass around the sign-up sheet, brothers? There were two sign-up sheets. One, both are important. One, well, one is mine. Um, <laughs> um, so before Cylinder went, you don't hear about all these solar companies doing like here's now they don't make any, they don't not making too much money, but they don't they don't talk about oh we spend all this on community education. Just like you don't hear the labor movement saying oh here's how we're helping everyone because they don't feel guilty. So that's a good sign that they have the moral upper hand. I, I think a perfect example is in the printing industry. Uh -huh. uh, some years ago, there was all this fuss about uh, changing to soy-based ink. Yeah. Well, well, guess what? All the volatile organic compounds in printing comes from the alcohol used in the printing solution, not the ink. The ink was based on the leftover of the refinery process uh -huh. that's a heavy grease uh -huh. that doesn't evaporate. And so this change to soy-based ink is pure bullshit. <laughs> now, they've all changed to soy-based ink, and now they're paying uh, the Forestry Stewardship Council and three or four other organizations to get a printer that they're buying sustainable paper. <laughs> Which is the same paper they've always bought. Yeah, but now they have all this recycled. They now have a. They have all this recycled stuff, which is the same. Well, the, rec the recycled stuff. Actually, the reason that printers didn't use recycled paper until they were forced to was that it didn't print very well. Yeah, no. That's what I'm saying. But but they have uh, they've improved the, the recycling process. Uh, but it's it's mostly for show. But then they now they advertise on green right. But every every little act of show sort of inculcates guilt in the just makes this this is this sort of makes just this national cult. I mean, if somebody had simply said, "Hey, wait a minute, the soy-based ink we're going to devastate the uh, uh, Amazon rainforest to grow the soybeans because that's exactly what they're doing," mm -hmm. and here we're using a waste product from the refining process that ends up on the paper that eventually ends up. Sequestered in a landfill, mm -hmm. 
Whereas now that's being burned in ocean-going ships as bunker fuel oil. Yeah, so there's a lot to say. That's interesting. You had a question? Yeah, just based on back to the apologetic companies. I mean, the psyche that we have of anti-oil, anti-big business has even penetrated big business and oil themselves. And it's not that what they need to say is they need to say that, hey, even if we didn't give all this money to education, even if we didn't, we weren't charitable at all, we're still, you still need us. We're still not bad. Even if we didn't do all this stuff, we're an oil company, we're for profit, and we provide a product people want, and it's necessary for the industry. So, I mean, all this apologetic stuff is actually just aiding their own demise, saying, you know, acknowledging that we agree with you, we're terrible people. You can tell me whatever. I don't know what time you wanted to end. I mean, I can go forever. But... Yeah, we can go forever. 8.45. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, so finance is, is my thing. And, um, I'm just wondering what kind of the, your take is on regulation and finance that it should happen or what, or to not extent, or I'm just curious to know what you think about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, go to my website. One of my websites, alexepstein.com. It'll have more on this, but I'll give you just a quick... Three seconds. Quick sketch. Yeah, I mean, so it's, 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 I mean, my basic policy on the economy is a separation of state and economics. So the government's job is to prosecute force and fraud so that only voluntary relations occur among individuals. So in the banking system, this is what's called the free banking position, which is often called the gold standard, although it's not exactly the same thing. So free banking means that in individuals form institutions or trade with each other and decide. What kind, how do we exchange things? So they, they're allowed to barter if they want, but that's not very efficient. So they picked means of indirect exchange, um, and usually they pick gold, and then banks pick whatever policies. And if they commit fraud, they get prosecuted. Otherwise, people can do uh, whatever they want. And that works to the extent that's occurred in history. It's worked very well. And to the extent the government has gotten involved in the economy, particularly in the business of printing money and or artificially lowering interest rates, creates inflation, boom-bust cycle, uh, all that kind of thing. So something like the financial crisis on this view is this is a product of, uh, of government intervention. It's, on the, uh, it's a product of the, the Fed um, basically giving away a lot of free money, and then that money aggregating in the housing sector. Are the gold standard? What's that? Are you for the gold standard? In, in essence, yes, but I'm for a freely chosen standard. It seems like all the research says that that's the reason why the Great Depression lasted as long as it did. Because they had gold? Uh, yes. Then why? I don't know. What? Just might want to read that research. I, I, have, I have read that research. I wouldn't regard it as all the research. Or, or, <laughs> but it, it's an analysis anyway. It's not exactly research to because you're attributing your cause. So you have a gold standard, right? So if, okay. if you look at so if you look at the proximate things that happened before the Great Depression, there's a kind of suspicious thing in nineteen thirteen called the Federal Reserve, which gets established. So it's sure. been a gold standard for a while. And you've got throughout, you know, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, you've got a progressive amount of intervention by uh, government. Yeah. So so it's not a gold. That's why I stress the free banking aspect. Because it's not that it's not that you have this metal. Although that metal is a hell of a lot better than not having it. It's much better. I mean, now versus you know what we have, which is government can print anything. So there's this issue of um, my colleague points out. I, I don't think this is his example, but he gave it to me. 
that what was it that I'm gonna botch it, but it's something about like you can, you know, now you can. There's been so much inflation that you used to be able to buy like a nice suit for five bucks, and now it's like a thousand bucks. But the price of gold has like remained the same. So for the same amount of gold, you can buy a nice suit, except it's you know this massive multiple difference. So that means that the currency has been inflated. Now what does that mean? Right, but but. Right, but it's it's important to understand that it's fu fundamentally redistribution that occurs when you inflate. Because it's look, if all of us had twice as much money in our wallets tomorrow, it wouldn't be that big a deal, right? It would just be just a mathematical detail. If every if if money entered the economy at the exact same rate, it would just be all equal. So the issue is when you inflate the currency, it's someone wants money or someone is producing money for some purpose. And it, it goes to some people rather than others. So it's a redistribution mechanism. So in a housing boom, what happens is the money that's printed goes first to often a sector that's particularly hot among the banks. So you have real estate securitization and housing bubble going on, partially because of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So that was the one that happened then. Earlier, you had dot-com uh, companies. Sure. So anyway, that's more than 30 seconds, but that's... Well, the inflation essentially steals from the saver and delivers to the borrower. Sure. Yeah, that's a good. So yeah. what happens is that if you, if you borrow, you benefit from inflation, and that's why the government uses inflation to monetize their debt. They don't have to pay it off. Good point. Yes. Um, yeah, my question that um, I asked during dinner, but. Um, being in a room full of libertarians as an objectivist, uh -huh. um, what's your opinion of the libertarian movement? Do you have a critique, or um, what do you think? I, I should say in a room full of mostly libertarians. This is a plant, a by the way. Yes, dinner. I told the plant in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about um, publicly. So I have no idea. Whatever. Unfortunately, I don't know what anyone's context is with regard to this issue. But there's um, a historical conflict. Uh, between people who call themselves objectivists, which include me, and people who call themselves libertarians. Um, and I just want to tell you how I think of this uh, issue. So I regard the goal of everything in life is to be practical. So the reason I like Ayn Rand's ideas is because I believe understood and followed correctly, understood correctly, they are practical and lead to good results. And to the extent that's not true, they should be jettisoned. So if I found something that I thought was impractical, I would get I would disagree with it, and I would believe something else. So one issue that comes up a lot in life, and particularly in morality, is the issue of alliances. So whom do you associate with, and whom do you not associate with? And it's clear that in life, it can be very beneficial to associate uh, with people. So. For example, let's see. I mean, for, for example, Ayn Rand was around. I would love it if she would ask me to be her associate because she's a hero of mine and brilliant and could help me in all, uh, in all kinds of ways. And when I, I worked at the Ayn Rand Institute, um, you know, I, I had coworkers who were very helpful uh, to me. So that was a, that was a beneficial um, so type of association. There's also such a phenomenon as people who are in some have something in common with you, but you don't want to have anything uh, to do with them. So there are, for instance, racists 
who call themselves pro-liberty, and I would call myself pro-liberty, but I would not get on a stage with them for obvious reasons. Um, there are um, well, there are Nazis who would call themselves pro-liberty in different ways. I mean, so there's different people you want to associate with. So the, que so the question is, how do you know when to associate with someone? It can't just be they say they're for the same thing you are, because often that can be the worst sometimes. If they if someone says they're on your side, but then they they really aren't on your side, or they really make it disreputable, then every time your position comes out, um, it becomes disreputable by association. So this came up historically with the issue of liber the term libertarian. So the term libertarian used to mean back way back in the day classical, more or less meant classical liberal. Um, so if you look at Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, you look at the appendix of recommended readings, there's a lot of things from, at least a couple from you know, libertarian press and stuff like that. It just meant you know, someone who's in the general American tradition. Now on that, I would, if that were the modern meaning of the term, I would certainly say I'm in the libertarian tradition, just like I'll say I'm in the I'm pro-liberty or I'm classical liberal. Um, what happened though is that libertarian. Uh, you look like you're ready to tear that up. Okay. <laughs> no, please, please, please. Um, <laughs> to get back on. To get back on. Um, what happened was. Um, Atlas Shrugged came out, Ayn Rand promoted her ideas of objectivism. Some people, including some people she had been associated with, um, started the modern libertarian movement taking some element, or saying they took some elements of her ideas, like we're against the initiation of force, and they blended it with, for example, the idea of anarchy. There should be no government. In her view, and in mine, this was an anti-liberty view, because if you not have government, it is an enormous human issue that you can't have liberty. Uh, without government. And, and along with that anti-government view was some truly bizarre uh, positions. Um, just enormous amounts of anti-Americanism, championing the Soviet Union, championing the Soviet Union-sponsored um, people in different countries, hatred of Israel, uh, racist statements, which we now see with the whole you know, Ron Paul thing coming out of this whole legacy, which is Murray Rothbard and Lou Rockwell. So, um, I mean, people... So anti-government, they would say that government has no role, and this is a big issue. If you want, you, I can point to the literature, but government has no role in, um, say, preventing child molestation. And they say, well, that's a voluntary act. You know, the whole Nambla thing. This is a real issue in history. So you can see why Ayn Rand might not have wanted that term associated with her, and why um, people who agree with her philosophy didn't want to be associated with that term. At the same time, though, so there was an initial meaning, and then there's a certain meaning which became associated with formal institutions such as a libertarian party. And in the last decade or two, at least, I don't have the exact history, but it's it started to become a broader term. It's become a more popular term due to certain people, and it's become a term that many people whom I would regard as classical liberals designate themselves as. So, for instance, so these aren't people I agree with on everything, but say people at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, to some extent the Cato Institute, um, people I work with, I write for a blog called Master Resource, most of those guys call themselves uh, libertarians. And so it's now become kind of a meaningless term, um, because it still encompasses, it has the classical liberal element, but there's still a major anarchist element, and it's still... In my view, I don't agree with the foreign policy views at all. And an anti-intellectual property view, 
So many things that I very strongly disagree about. That doesn't mean I won't talk to someone and explain my views on it, but it's not something I want to be identified as. But nor is it something that, because it's such a hodgepodge, it doesn't make any sense to say, well, I will not associate with libertarians, because that has no reference anymore. It's just a blend of a bunch of incongruous things. So there were points at which people who were followers of Ayn Rand said, you know, like, don't associate with libertarians under any circumstances. And I think chronologically, it doesn't make sense as a statement anymore. Um, but I would still not ally myself with those people who gave the term uh, a bad name. So when people ask, are you libertarian? I say, you know, I don't like that term. You can call me, uh, just call me laissez-faire or whatever. But I don't, I don't go out of my way to say I, like, I'm anti-libertarian because the words are, are used enormously for communication and it's become a term that people, very good people identify with. So the key thing is just finding the right audience, finding among that people associated with the term, finding the right audiences and finding the right allies. And that really means people who are, people who basically hold pro-liberty ideas versus people who hold ideas that I think are antithetical and, and would be disreputable to me. So I would not have Lou Rockwell write my news. And I would be suspicious of someone who did let him and said he never read them. Just like I'm suspicious of Obama for saying he never heard that Jeremiah Wright said goddamn America. Yes? You know, along those lines, that just made me think of something as far as what um, objectivists would call ourselves in a political context. Like, for instance, um, people might ask me if I'm a libertarian, and I might say, well, I'm kind of like that, but not really, but uh-huh. you, know, you can mm-hmm. sort of, and, or a lot of people say I'm a social liberal and a fiscal conservative, but that's really awkward. Yeah. Libertarian, you know, you wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to exactly, like, it's becoming more of that blanket term, but it doesn't have a really specific meaning, and I would not want to be uh, associated with NAMLA or <laughs> So, I don't know, this is just kind of a, more of a open question. So, I, I my view on this is, there's one question of, what should a movement call itself? Um, because I don't think there's going to be like an objectivist party. I think it's going to be more of a catch-all, and I hope the objectivist ideas become more dominant because that will make better policies and I think it'll be more effective ultimately. But that's one question. I don't have a great answer for that. But when when I want that, I just say like I'm for capital, you know, I'm capital pro-capitalism, let's say fair. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that important. But if you want to go for effect, if you want to be, you can actually make it interesting by saying like uh, some people say like. Um, you know, laissez-faire economics, hawk on national security, or something like that. Just interest, because an actually pro-liberty position, I think, in domestic and foreign policy will be inc- will be interesting to people that you, it'll be this weird juxtaposition to them, even though to you it's consistent. And that people always like that kind of thing, like, because I think it's original. Um, so it's it's not, and all, but it serves your purpose if you want to make it clear. So just just, you can, you're allowed to say more than one word. Right, it just seems yeah. like it'd be nice to have a label that... But the, this is a communication point. You can't, like, you can't just make up new labels and expect people to get them. I mean, you can make a move. I mean, I hope people say go industrial and whatever, but you can't just, make, like, make up a party. So you have to realize what the context is, and it's... Once there's enough demand, someone will make up a label. It might not even be the one you like, but... It's not that big a deal. All right, I think we'll have to cut it off there, but thanks very much. Thank you.